Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be carrying on in our series on the book of Ezekiel. And what we're covering is an awful lot of detail. So if you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, that sort of thing, now would be a really good time for that because there's a lot of information to cover. And what I expect is that you are likely going to need to go back and reread some stuff so that it makes a little bit more sense moving forward. And so we're just going to dive right into it because there's a lot of content for us to cover and I'm just excited to do this with you. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, which I would anticipate that you do, Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 17 to 21 is where I want us to kind of have a bit of a picture of, of what's going on in terms of God's um, mentality in this. Sometimes we can lose that when we're covering uh, so much of a particular book of the Bible because we are covering a lot of chapters today. We're actually covering 20 chapters today. So Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17 to 21. Uh, if you don't know where that is, then in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. People worked hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17 to 21. Here's what it says. Therefore, say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel. They will turn to it and remove all the vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time today and, and that we have the opportunity to dive into your word, to learn more, to try and understand more so that we can apply more. And so Lord God, as we're looking into your word today, I ask that you would uh, help us to have clarity, help us to have a, a, an understanding of what's going on here so that we can move forward in understanding you at deeper levels. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, so where are we in the story here, right? Well, what we have is, is the sin of Judah and the judgment of God coming about in this particular segment of, or the thematically within the book of Ezekiel. And this covers Ezekiel chapter 4 all the way up to Ezekiel chapter 24. And so there's a lot of stuff going on here. And if you are a person who appreciates symbolism, appreciates um, even just prophecy and seeing how it unfolds, this is a fantastic section for you, but at the same time, it's also a section where God is sort of pulling out the sin of the people. He is calling it out. He is dealing with it. He is um, he's working through a pretty painful process. This is the language of, um, of Scripture where it talks about purify my heart. Uh, the idea of make it like gold and, and this notion of purification is that things get melted down when you're purifying metals. And what happens is, is that the gold will get melted down, the impurities rise to the top, and then they get scraped off. So I want you to have that kind of thinking as we talk about God disciplining His people in Judah. So Ezekiel is God's chosen mouthpiece for judgment on Judah. His 
vision of God's holiness is balanced by his awareness of God's love and his affection and, um, and mercy towards people. Uh, we have, for example, uh, Peter Craigie. He wrote a book called The Old Testament. It's kind of an Old Testament survey. It gives you a picture into everything. But I really love what he says here. He says, the loving kindness of God and the capacity for forgiveness could not ultimately be exhausted. In other words, there's no end to God's ability to be able to exercise love and mercy. There must therefore be hope beyond the cataclysm. Think about that. There must therefore be hope beyond the cataclysm, a new world lying somewhere beyond the devastation of Jerusalem and its temple. And so in amidst all of this difficult news, the hardships that they're experiencing, the being taken from their land into another land, not having access to the temple anymore, the temple being destroyed, uh, recognizing that the temple was central to the Hebrew faith. There's hope even in this. The passage we just read in chapter 11 where God is going to restore people back to their land and um, and re-establish covenant relationship. This is good in amongst, in amongst the difficult. So here's what we got in chapter four. And we're just going to walk this forward. We're, um, I'm going to try and give you as much as we possibly can. So, you know, here comes the fire hydrant opening up. In chapter four, uh, we find that, that the Lord is going to destroy Jerusalem. And this is significant. Because Jerusalem is considered the holy city, it's central to um, the Hebrew faith. And, and, and here's something that's really interesting to note as well. Uh, the term Jew comes from um, the, the language of Judah. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel, you have the southern kingdom of Judah. This is a divided kingdom after Solomon. And what you find actually is that after the northern tribes, the 10 tribes in the north that was called Israel is gone, Judah is all that exists. And the people uh, were called Jews for short. And so if you were ever wondering where the term Jew came from, it came from this right here, talking about the people that were from Judah. They were called Judeans and then Jews for short. And so what we find is that the Lord is going to destroy Jerusalem. This is Ezekiel chapter 4 all the way to Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 27. And, and, and it starts off with this really interesting pantomime. Um, here's what I mean. So in Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, you have Ezekiel playing what you could call war games, right? So if you picture a kid in the sandbox and, and they're creating like a castle with... Um, with walls around it, and they're gonna, the castle's going to get sieged, all that kind of stuff. I want you to have that picture in mind, because that is what Ezekiel is doing here. He's using a large sun-dried brick as this symbol for Jerusalem. And he sets up these miniature camps all around the walls that are around this thing. And these are siege lines. Uh, he builds dirt ramps up to it. He made this miniature battering ram as if to knock down this wall. And this was to let Judah know, the nation, the kingdom of Judah, know that Jerusalem was going to come under siege. So this is 
as we as we talk about the prophecies and how God plays things out, God is an incredible storyteller. And so he's using this this war game play, like almost this, again, pantomime, this this idea of of creating this image for them to be able to see and understand that Jerusalem is going to come under siege. We have Ezekiel in the midst of this for 390 days being told to lie down on one side of of the sign of Israel's punishment, the ten nations to the north, or ten tribes to the north. And then for an additional 40 days on his other side, it was to... He was to lay down there to symbolize the punishment over Judah. Now, there's some debate over what the 390 and the 40 mean. But what we do know is that when the time is right, the exiles would return to their land. And so whatever that debate is regarding the 390 days, is it the, does it represent the kings? Does it represent the sin? Does it represent, like whatever it is that it represents. Uh, do some research on that because you may find that there's some interesting conversations you can have about it. Regardless of what it represents, what it symbolizes, the idea behind it is that there is this waiting period, this symbolic lying down on one side to represent the kingdoms of the north, and the other side to represent the kingdoms of the south. And it symbolizes this punishment that both were experiencing. What we know is that when the time is right, the exiles are going to return to their land. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff that God gets Elijah to do, or sorry, Ezekiel to do, that are physical, that are representative to the people so that when they see it, they have to take note of it. And you got this idea of food being scarce also in Ezekiel chapter 4, and this is 9 to 17. Um, and here, he's being asked to, to do something strange. So when you're under siege, you don't have any food coming into market. You don't have uh, access to the farmlands or anything else like that. You're within the city that is protecting you and the walls of the city is protecting you. And so all that you have is whatever is within those walls. And so he was mixing various grains and beans and, and peas together to make this flour for bread. So he was crushing it, making flour for bread. And it wasn't the normal way that they would eat. But the symbol that was represented there was, listen, you're not going to have what you normally have. The city's going to be under siege and food is going to be scarce. You're going to be hungry. And this is what you're going to be left with. And he commands Ezekiel to do like one of the weirdest things. He, He wanted Ezekiel to cook over human feces, dried human feces. And of course, that was too much for Ezekiel because that would have been betraying the the priestly upbringing that he would have had. It it would have been betraying his role as priest um, because that's certainly not something that he was supposed to participate in and and take in. And so he pleaded with the Lord for an alternative. and, And that alternative then was to cook his food over dried cow dung. Cow feces. All of this demonstrates the the conditions that existed during the siege of Jerusalem. Like it paints a picture for people. And so what we have here is that God's saying, listen, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to root out the sin. I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to come under siege. And and this is what the people are going to be experiencing. And so there's this 
punishment language. There is the siege language. There is the scarcity of food language. None of this is painting a picture that the people, the chosen people of God, wanted. None of it. They were under discipline. And, and discipline has good outcomes, but it doesn't have a feel-good space in life. And people don't typically appreciate the feeling that they have when they're under discipline. But the outcome in terms of the correction that takes place is good. And then you have Ezekiel cutting his hair in chapter 5. And the cutting of Ezekiel's hair was a lesson on humility because in that day, a man's hair was his pride. And so this is significant for Ezekiel to have cut his hair. His head style would be one of a man, listen, that was taken out as a prisoner of war. So when you're a prisoner of war in those days, your, head was, your hair was cut. Uh, some nations would have shaved your head. Other nations would have just kept your hair short. And so he had this haircut that was that of a prisoner of war, again, representative of what was going on with, uh, with Judah, with Jerusalem. And so he divided his hair into three parts. And a third of that was to be burned, symbolizing that a third of the population was going to be consumed by pestilence. Symbolic. You know, this physical image of, of what was to come. A third of the, his hair was chopped into pieces with a sword, symbolizing that a third of the people would die by the sword. And a third was scattered to the wind to symbolize that a third of the population was going to be scattered all over the world and chased by the sword. I mean, this is miserable. It is this language of difficulty and doom and gloom. And, and when we find towards the end of all of this, because Israel was so... Their understanding of their God, the understanding of God, was that God was their protector. God was the one that was going to use them to purify the world in a sense, right? They were going to be a blessing to the world. God was the one who was going to use them against the nations around them. And what we find actually in chapter 6 is that God uses the enemies of Israel to discipline Israel. And so when you look at chapter 5, you see the effect of God's judgment on the people. In chapter 6, it covers the effect of God's judgment on the land. In chapter 7, it covers the effect of God's judgment on Israel's prosperity, on their ability to be a blessing. And these three, these three focuses bring you back to the promise to, that God gave Abraham. And so that if you remember that the Lord promised Abraham that he would have a people, they would be a great nation, that they would have this land that flows with milk and honey, and that they would be a blessing. And so what God is doing here is showing that, listen, we have this covenant relationship. You have betrayed this covenant relationship, as we'll see uh, the language of that a little bit later. But you have betrayed this covenant relationship, and then in doing so, I want to show you how this activity, your falling away, your chasing after idols, your chasing after sin, has impact on the covenant relationship that we have together. And so we see that the, the people were affected, the land is affected, the prosperity and blessing of Israel is affected. And these promises that we get from God, even in the midst of this, the promises are unconditional. 
that God is going to remain faithful to Israel in all of these areas. So yes, these areas are under judgment, they're under discipline, but God is going to remain faithful to Israel in these areas ultimately. So here's what that means. There are people that are going to experience the discipline of God in this, but God's concern ultimately is for the totality of the people of God, His chosen people. So there are individuals that are going to experience scarcity of food and and might die of malnutrition. There are people who are going to be cut down by the sword. A third of the population is going to be die by the sword. So when God's discipline comes in, there's this difficult wrestling match that we have with God because we seem to have this notion that God is not going to do anything that might harm us in terms of how we would define harm. But God's desire for His chosen people is their ultimate good. And so, now, I've said it this way to people, and I think this will resonate with you. God is so concerned about our holiness that He sent His Son to die a brutal, humiliating, gruesome death on the cross on our behalf. So let's not be too surprised if our hands get slapped if they're too close to the cookie jar. That's the idea here. God's discipline doesn't mean that He's going to walk away from His side of the covenant relationship. Because it's unconditional and God's going to remain faithful to Israel in all three of those areas. But it does mean that He's going to pursue Israel to then also be faithful. So those within Israel who ultimately receive these promises are those who share in the faith of Abraham and they're called the remnant. They're called the remnant. And so that's kind of what's taking place in, in some of these interesting symbolic uh, gestures, these physical actions that Ezekiel is asked to undertake. They're symbolic. They represent God's discipline in it. And, and then we walk into this language of God bringing the accusations against uh, Judah. And so we talk about Ezekiel chapter 8 all the way to Ezekiel chapter 11, where there is this heresy in the temple. You read in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1 to 18, that Israelites had their false gods that they were worshiping. You read in Ezekiel 9, 1 to 11, verse 25, how God's glory ultimately ends up leaving the temple. This is massive language. So in late August or early September of 592 BC, Ezekiel is sitting with the elders of Judah when the Lord gives them this new vision. So the elders are there and they're, they're kind of you know, trying to figure out, hey, what's God saying? And Israel is wondering, like in terms of Israel, not just the 10 tribes to the north, but the nation of Israel in completion. They're, the leaders, the elders there are wondering, what's God doing? Because Ezekiel is giving them a very, very different message than what the other prophets are giving them. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah are both sending these letters to these elders to warn them of, of God's judgment on them. So the elders in exile have recognized that the hand of God is on Ezekiel and they're keeping company with him to see what message God's going to reveal. And in the presence of the elders, Ezekiel has this vision as suddenly the hand of the Lord falls on him there. And so in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 2 and 3, it says this, I looked up and there was a form with the appearance of a human being. Downwards from what seemed to be the waste, there was fire. 
and upward from the waist there was this brilliance like the glitter of amber. Something like a hand was stretched out and it took me by a lock of my hair and the Spirit lifted me between heaven and earth and visions from God who took me to Jerusalem to the entrance of the inner north gate. Now, the figure he sees is kind of like the description that he gave of this human-like figure in Ezekiel chapter 1. Talking about this figure that was at the center of the four living creatures uh, in in his first vision, that's chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. His experience of being grabbed up by his hair is like that of the prophet Habakkuk in Daniel chapter 14, verse 36. And so there's a lot of similarities that are taking place in amongst the prophets at this time. The Spirit of God takes Ezekiel in in a vision to the Jerusalem temple, not to recount the past sins of the people, but to witness the present sins, the present, what God would call abominations of the nation of Israel, of the people, and it demanded immediate punishment. It demanded immediate correction, immediate discipline. And remember that when we're talking about God's discipline or punishment or judgment, these are things that are intended at this point to be corrective. It's intended to turn our hearts back towards Him. And so there are these six abominations that are taking place in the temple in in verses 10 to 17. Here's what they are. There are unclean animals being offered in sacrifice. This is going against the Levitical laws that they were given. There's representations of pagan idols carved on the temple walls. Imagine that. Like this was believed to be the dwelling place of God, and you're asking him to share this space with pagan idols. You know, there should be no other gods before me, right? Like you shall have no other gods. And here they are in God's house offering up other gods. The religious leadership were worshiping pagan idols by offering incense to them. So these are the leaders that are doing this. Women were practicing rituals in honor of a pagan god, Tammuz. Men were worshiping the pagan sun god. And men were burning and inhaling substances to cause hallucinations. I mean, all these things were taking place. Now, Tammuz, for those of you who are wondering, was a Mesopotamian deity associated with vegetation. Now, according to history, According to legend, uh, Tammuz died every fall and was resurrected every spring to restore fertility to the earth. Tammuz, the worship of her, included times of significant weeping of her death in the fall and, as in the case of Ezekiel, receiving in his vision. So when he sees this worship of Tammuz, it says that the women were crying, they were weeping. So it gives you an indication also that, yes, this was in the fall. This was the weeping and crying, the mourning of Tammuz's death. And so the the mourning of the vegetation, that sort of idea, um, absolute within practice of the pagan world around them. And these were to be a set-apart people. These were the chosen people of God who were to be set apart, to show the rest of the world what it was like to live in relationship with God. And here they were behaving like the rest of the world. Ezekiel sees 70 elders of the house of Israel involved in pagan worship. These are men that are the highest leaders in the nation. And so it just, it starts to give you this picture and this indication of just how much it's, 
oh, how fall, how far people have fallen and that it's reached all the way up into the most significant leadership in the nation. Later, 70 elders representing the people, along with reigning high priest, composed of a governing body of the Sanhedrin and the nation's high court. There's this Jezenai, Jezaniah, sorry, the son of Shaphan, who is one of the 70 leaders committing adultery within, within the temple. And it is significant that he is the only one named in this passage, although there are two other wicked leaders that will be named in chapter 11. And so you have this person who is um, part of the elders, part of the Sanhedrin, part of the ruling class over Israel, that is worshiping idols in the temple. Like the, the class of people that are supposed to lead people to God is leading people away from God. And so the Lord then replies to the exiles. And in his reply to the exiles, uh, there is this language of dread almost. You have the fate of the false prophets. Now, this is chapters 12 to 19. So we're getting there. We're, we're in a good space already. But this is chapters 12 to 19. And so you have the fate of the false prophets in chapter 13, verses 1 to 16. Chapter 13 contains a list of charges against these false prophets. And then there's also these two announcements of judgment. And so the charges that God brings against the false prophets are in verses 1 to 8. And, and instead of speaking for God, they are speaking foolish words out of their own heads. In Hebrew, it's more the language of out of their own hearts. And we know that, that our evil desires come from our evil hearts, right? And so that's, that's the language that we're seeing here. So instead of speaking on behalf of God, they're speaking what they would like, what their desires are. They give prophecies independently from God. And so they follow their own spirit and don't actually end up seeing anything from God. They are like predatory animals feeding on the fears of the exiles. And here's the interesting thing about feeding on the fears of exiles. When you are in exile, when you are a dispersed people, when you are no longer able to do the things that you were normally able to do, you have these almost like prophets of fear that come in. And they feed off of it. They gain power off of it. They, they lead other people into further realms of fear rather than realms of victory by turning our eyes towards the Lord. So they're like these predatory animals feeding on the fears of the exiles. The true prophet's mission, right? So these are the false prophets. The true prophet's mission, according to Ezekiel 13, had a threefold purpose. It was the prophet's mission to protect um, to build a wall for the covenant people against God's wrath by calling them to repentance, to recommit to obedience in their covenant relationship to God. So the way that they protect is they call people back to the Lord. Now you're going to see that language throughout Ezekiel, and especially towards the end. We're going to see that language because that language from God's perspective comes in the form of then they will know that I am the Lord. And, and you see that phrase all throughout Ezekiel. And so even in this, the prophet's role, ultimately the mission was to protect the people by drawing them back to the Lord so that they will know that he is the Lord. And, and what's going to take place 
ultimately is that the eyes of the people will eventually be opened up and they're going to see God for who he is, which is exactly what God is saying the whole time through. So the prophet's mission was to protect people by drawing people's eyes back to the Lord and building this wall around them to protect them from those who were like these ravenous animals feeding on fear. The prophet's mission was to intercede with God on their behalf. And so he was to stand in the gap, stand in the breach between man and God. He was the intercessor to some extent. And so when they failed in the hope that they would, so he would stand there when they failed in the hope that he would have time to respond to his message, that they would repent, that they reestablished their covenant relationship with God. And then lastly, the role of the prophet That when all attempts to call people to repentance has failed, right? All the attempts of people have failed. And the relationship with God was in ruins like a collapsed wall. It was the prophet's duty to call a covenant lawsuit against this unrepentant apostate, a people who have fallen away, people. That's an interesting one. That there was this charge that would be laid against the people, it would probably come in the form of either an exhortation or a rebuke. It was a callback, but it was also this notion of, you have sinned. This is your sin. This is what God is going to do to rescue, excuse me, rescue you from your sin. And in this, we see Ezekiel step forward in chapters 20 to 24, with these prophecies for disaster for Judah. And there's these three sermons that we see that come up in in chapters 20 to 22. You have a sermon on the will of God that's in chapter 20. In 590 BC, some of the community leaders, they came to Ezekiel to ask him what the Lord's will was for the people. Like as if they shouldn't have already known, right? Uh, Be faithful to me. Keep your eyes on me. Do my, follow my decrees. This is what God's will is for the people. And so they... They come to him, they ask what the Lord's will was for the people, and it might seem odd that these leaders are getting advice um, because they were getting advice from the other prophets in the area, and it was contradicting the advice that they got from Ezekiel and from Jeremiah in the letters that they sent to them. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel send letters to the elders of, of Judah. They're getting information and advice from these other prophets, and so it seems interesting that they come to Ezekiel and say, okay, what is the Lord saying? So they now, they've turned away from these other prophets and they're turning towards the actual prophets of God. And in answer to their question, they were reminded of this long and shameful history of disobedience that their forefathers had, had lived. Uh, it wasn't, this isn't the first time that Israel walked away from the Lord and into idol worship. It wasn't the first time that um, other things became the priority over God in their lives. Time after time, God affirms and He reaffirms His commitment to be their God and lead them to a good life. And He demands, His demand, is that they put aside all other gods and worship Him alone. You will not have any other gods before me, He says. And so the Lord was determined to weed out the sinners from amongst the people, and only the righteous would be allowed to return to the Holy Land. This is the first sermon on the will of God. You want to know what God's will is? Simple. Return to Him. Don't allow the other things in life to become ultimate things. You have good things in life, don't allow them to become ultimate things. The ultimate thing is Jesus. 
That's ultimate. We fix our eyes on Him. Anything that comes along that takes away from that is us returning to idol worship. You see, when God is displaced, when Jesus is displaced as the primary emphasis of of authority in life, of direction in life, of, of purpose in life, when He is displaced from that, we enter into idol worship. And that idol worship can take a lot of different forms. And sometimes good things that that are intended to be good for us, they become ultimate things. And when they're ultimate things, and Jesus isn't. And so we, we move into this place of idol worship as well. So God's will is that the people would turn their eyes back towards Him. They would repent of their idol worship and move back in directions towards Him. Another sermon that we have here is Ezekiel 21, verse 1 to 32. And there's this sword of the Lord. And on his model of Jerusalem, back in Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel is to place a sign at the fork in the road, and God says, appoint a road for the sword to go to Rabbah of the Ammonites and Judah into fortified Jerusalem. So the king of Babylon will use a divination to decide that he will take the road to Jerusalem and lay siege to it and set up his weapons and machines of destruction. The divination might be false, but the attack on Jerusalem is appointed by God and is real. So let's understand this, okay? So God is using the enemies of Israel to come in and discipline Israel to to siege Jerusalem. And so even when King Nebuchadnezzar comes along and, and tries to use this pagan divination to try and figure out what direction he's supposed to go in, God is still in control and above that. And God creates the outcome to be that they would go and pursue Jerusalem over the city of the Ammonites. And Israel's sin and corruption have been remembered and exposed. So now God's reputation has got to be preserved. See, these are the people of God. And if the people of God are not honoring them, God, then God is going to come in and say, hang on a second, my name will be honored. And so he comes in and he preserves himself within this. The time has come, well, to put an end to the sin. That's Ezekiel 21, verse 24. The prince of Israel will be overthrown and stripped of his turban and crown. There will be no son to reign as king in Israel until, listen, so this is a prophetic message referring to Jesus, until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. It's a reference to God's son, Jesus, the Messiah. It's pretty cool. And the third message, the third sermon from Ezekiel we find here is talking about specifically the sins of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel is given the task of exposing the abomination, the bloodshed and the idolatry of Jerusalem. Her destruction is near and she will be infamous. She will be mocked by the nations according to Ezekiel 22. Like there is this, okay, I'll say it this way. In order to be able to have revival, To revive something, there must be death. Something has to die for something to be revived. Or or at the very least, something has to be destroyed in order for something to be resurrected, you could say. So the sins of Israel have to be destroyed. And so what God does is He says, listen, these are all the different things that you've placed confidence in. These are all the different things that you've taken 
for granted. I'm going to remove these things. These things are not going to, your systems, your structures, the things you counted on are no longer going to be able to be things counted on because the only thing you will be left with is the Lord, your God. That is what's happening with Israel. And so there follows a detailed list of sins. There's abuse of power. There's disrespect for parents, oppression of strangers, mistreatment of orphans and widows, profaning the holy things and the Sabbath. There's slander. There's eating food offered to idols. There's lewdness. There's sexual sins, including incest. There's financial sins of bribery, usury, and extortion. And probably the most damning at all, God says, you have forgotten me. Like doing any of these things, pick it. Take a look at it. This is Ezekiel 22, verse 6 to 12. Take a look at these sins that are here. To do any of them results in the outcome statement by God that says, you have forgotten me. Because had you remembered me, had I been ultimate in your life, this wouldn't have happened. This is what he's saying to Israel. And I want to suggest to you, this is what he's saying to us too. When these things are the important things in our lives, if these things are the directions that we move into, then we have forgotten him. And in forgetting him, in forgetting him, we have shown what is ultimate in our lives. And so let's not be surprised when God says, no, I'm not going to let you continue down that road. I'm going to put things in place to draw your eyes back towards me. And this is why God beats his fists and sends his sword to scatter the people among the nations and and shame them. It's kind of like when Jesus talks about um, his own relationship to to the people of God, right? He says, look, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. You know, I'll be ashamed of you towards my father. And so it is this idea of God says, look, you have shamed me, I will shame you. And it's, it's not this tit-for-tat kind of idea. It is remembering, oh, wait, yes, that's right. God is God. I am not. He will be glorified in my life, in my decisions, in the way I deal with people, all of this stuff. God is bringing discipline. And then we get to the end. The 24th chapter of Ezekiel. And this chapter is about the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. So you have, leading up to chapter 24, you have the prophecy of the leading to the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Chaldeans, uh, also known as the Babylonians. Zedekiah was reigning in Jerusalem at the time. He was, it was in the ninth year of his reign. He had been dumb enough to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And so we're still... He, like most people in Jerusalem, did evil and didn't listen to God. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar was able to destroy Jerusalem. Jeremiah 52. You see, you got to remember that Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel, they're all contemporaries of each other. And so whatever Ezekiel is saying, Jeremiah is saying, and Daniel is saying, and experiencing, and all these things are taking place. And so at Nebuchadnezzar's palace, it was in Babylon nearly 1,500 kilometers, 900 miles from Jerusalem, but his armies marched across the world conquering. Nebuchadnezzar had been troubling Jerusalem and Judah for years. He had taken Jehoiakim captive and many choice men, the language is here in the scriptures. And Ezekiel himself was, of course, among them. You remember that, that Ezekiel is introduced to us in that way. 
and he's living by the city of Kebar, Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 11. And so in his visions, Ezekiel had already been transported to Jerusalem to see the abominations that were taking place in the temple. He had prophesied in parables and poems and symbolic acts that the coming siege, about the coming siege and the destruction of the city. And so now in chapter 24 comes this brutal day where Nebuchadnezzar starts the siege and Ezekiel does not have to wait for the news to come from Jerusalem because God informs them immediately that the siege has begun and that Jerusalem will fall. The last bastion of hope for Judah, Jerusalem, the temple where God lived, will fall. And the only thing they have left then is God Himself. Not the symbols of God, not the physical um, building that supposedly housed God. They would have nothing except God Himself. So what we're studying here isn't just history. It's, it's history with a message for us. There's a few random points of example. No doubt you could probably think of several more, but those who listened to Ezekiel and believed that he was speaking for God could have heeded the warnings and got clear of danger, thinking that it would be better to flee than to die. And if we listen to Jesus and believe his warnings, we can flee from sin and avoid avoid the outcomes of sin. In the believer's life, the outcomes of sin is, is this distance from God, this um, damaging of the relationships with the people around us. It is the, the sense that, that we are far from God and not experiencing life in Christ. For the non-believer to not take heed of Jesus' words and invitation, the outcome of that, or, well, we call that hell. And it's real. And it's not a comforting message. But it's better to flee from sin and avoid the fires of hell to receive the grace from Jesus than to run from it. Nations in those days were all answerable to God. All of them were answerable to God. Like even Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was doing things on his own, but we find throughout the word that, that even Nebuchadnezzar was under the authority of God, so much so that when Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance got as high as it did, that God made him go mad for seven years and he was behaving like a wild animal. The nations in those days were answerable to God, and the nations today are answerable to God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so nations who are corrupt, who are rebellious, who are unbelieving, can still be brought low by God if they test Him too long and don't repent and turn to Him. And the world today is still full of idolatry. And the exhortation, exhortation still stands. And we read that exhortation in 1 John 5, 21. Little children, talking about believers, children of God, God's chosen people, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. So what's the idol in life? Is it your time? Is it your energy? Is it your money? Is it your family? Is it your work? Is it your possessions? Like, what is the idol in your life 
and keep yourselves from idols. It is not bad to have good things. Having good things can be great, but good things should never become ultimate things because when they do, God is no longer ultimate. We have dethroned Him and placed these things in its place. The other things that come along though, these are just the positive things. Like your family is good, your work is good. All these kinds of things are are good, but they're not intended to be ultimate. But we have things in life that are not good. The fear of man, is that your God? So you decide what you're going to decide to do based on how other people are going to view you. Is that something? The, The pursuit of sexual pleasure, like the hedonism, the pursuit of money and and at all costs that we would cheat people and feel justified because of whatever rationale we place forward in it. Do we pursue power so that we can lord over people or feel as though we have retained some level of positioning in life that gives us a higher credibility or a greater sense of being over others? You see, there's a lot of things that come into play when we talk about things that dethrone God in our lives. I'm just asking a simple question. What idol is in your life? Let us not be like Israel in this way. Let us not be like Judah in this way. Let us not dethrone God. Let us not test the Lord in this way. Little children, keep yourself from idols. What good thing have we made ultimate? What evil thing? have we made ultimate. Let us repent of these things and turn our eyes back towards the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I know, Lord, we went through a lot of information. But all of it, Lord, is you saying, this is what you will do, and then you actually doing it. And so then there is credibility in your word. There's credibility in your decision making. And so, Lord, I thank you that we have that example. We know, Lord, that you discipline those whom you love. And so there are times in our lives where we are under discipline when we take our eyes off of you. Lord God, that we would be the people who would turn our eyes back towards you and repent of the idols that are in our lives so that we find life in you. Thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you, Lord, that he offers life And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be a people who live in that. In your name I pray. Amen.